It's amazing how time flies, whether or not you're having fun. (laughs) (laughs) So in the last Dhamma talk that Terry gave, she spoke about the heavenly messengers. And in the other talk, there was a mention of the hosts of Mara, and the hosts of Mara were the, the forces that affected the Buddha on the evening of his enlightenment. And then, you know, he had this real clear understanding. And then he, he thought, well, you know, what do I do now? You know, this stuff is really subtle. How do I explain it to anybody? And Brahma Sahampati from the heavenly realms could read his thoughts, or so the legend goes, and says, well, for those who have but little dust in their eyes, please come and turn the wheel of the Dhamma. And so he thought, all right, but who do I go talk to? You know, so he was thinking about it, and he thought, well, you know, the teachers, his teachers, he had a lot of gratitude for the teachers who, who showed him uh, concentration. But when he, he looked, because his seeing was very clear, he could tell that they had already passed over. So then he went to think, well, well, who else should he try? And so he decided, well, the, the five ascetics that he'd practiced with would be the next people that he can try. So he was on his way to um, Benares, and on the way he met an ascetic. And, and the ascetic said, so who are you? Same thing, we just asked each other. <laughs> who are you? And he said, I am the completely, fully awakened, enlightened one. And this ascetic said, well, good for you. See you later. (laughs) And so he realized, because he was rather quick on the uptake, (laughs) that proclaiming his own enlightenment was not the path. And so when he got to Benares... You know, the five ascetics had written him off as a total washout. You know, somebody who eats quiche. (laughs) (laughs) And so they had made a decision before he showed up, you know, just ignore him. You know, this guy is a loser. Forget it. He's not doing the tough and the cool and the hard and the narrow like we are. But beside themselves, they couldn't help because he appeared irradiant and calm and peaceful. And so even though they had made an agreement to be disrespectful and not set up a seat for him and not speak to him and not listen to what he had to say, they set up a seat, they gathered around, and they listened. And it wasn't what he said that did that. It was the power of his presence. It was the radiance of his own being. And so it's lovely to me because I see all of you and you all look pink. 
And it's not just from being outside so many hours in the cold. (laughs) You know, there's a transformation that happens when people apply themselves to the practice and the kind of, um, the face begins to change. And so in five days, you know, I have watched quite significant change and transformation in many, most of you, you know. And there's a radiance that comes through. And this, to me, is one of the real beauties of the practice, is, is, is that our own inner beauty and radiance begins to shine. It's just lovely. So the Buddha sat down, and he gave the first discourse, which was the discourse of the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, we could spend a week, we could spend a month, we could spend a year talking about the Four Noble Truths. This is really deep, you know. Really deep. And it's really important to understand because the Four Noble Truths is really a practice in and of itself. And so the first truth is is that there's suffering. Now, it's not a prescription that life is a drag, you know. It's just a recognition that suffering is present. And we can see. You know, it's in our bodies, it's in things changing, it's in not getting what we want, it's having what we don't want. You know, we can see. And part of the enormous courage that I find where people coming on retreat is the willingness to look at dukkha. You know, because our society is hell-bent and determined not to do that. Anything, everything, is better than just sitting and being present with dukkha. So we can see that there's dukkha. But you have to remember that this is four noble truths and this is one. The second noble truth is that there's a cost to suffering. Now, we come from a society that has specialized, mastered, has gotten absolutely, spectacularly adept at finding the cause externally. This is a victim culture. And we feel really righteous when we can identify who out there is responsible for my suffering. Now, I don't mean in any way to diminish the kinds of suffering that some of us have experienced that have come from external causes. I don't mean to do that in any way. I'm just talking about a cultural value that looks externally for the source of all causes under all circumstances. And the Buddha said that the real cause of suffering is wanting things to be otherwise. You know, it's not wanting our pain. It's wanting it to be cooler. It's wanting it to be warmer. It's wanting the food to be different. It's wanting somebody to shut up in the morning during the morning meditation when it's supposed to be silent. You know, it's wanting things to be different. So the first noble truth is that there's suffering. The second noble truth is that there's a cause of suffering. And when we are able to begin to turn our attention to that place where we are wanting it to be otherwise, right there, precisely there, 
exactly there is where we can realize the cessation of suffering, which is part of the beauty, is, is that it doesn't actually require that the circumstances change in order that we not suffer. It doesn't mean that our thoughts go away or that our pain disappears or that we get what we want and that we get rid of what we don't want. What it means is that we come into a new way of being with what is. Now, obviously, we've talked a lot about balance, and part of developing balance is about changing things, not just being passive and accepting everything just as it is. Working with energy, working with posture, working with ways of knowing, working with metta. So the first noble truth that there is suffering is a gateway. It's not the only gateway. There are other ways that people can access insight. It happens to be a very wide gateway. And a lot of people pass through that gateway. Not everybody, and not all the time. But it is a very wide gateway. The fourth truth is there's a path to cultivate, to support the realization of the end of suffering. And what is that path? And the Buddha described the eightfold path. And in the Buddhist languaging or the English translation of it, often you hear the word right. Now, right doesn't mean righteous. It doesn't mean morally superior. I heard two translations recently which actually felt more like yes. One was connected and the other was resonant. So earlier this morning when I was talking about the Pali chanting and why, at least in the Theravadan tradition, there's an interest to keep the Pali, because language changes. You know, our use of, of, of language changes. And yet if we can keep going back to the original we have a sense of what the original meaning was if we know the original language. Otherwise, it's a little bit like a game of Chinese whispers. You know, What we end up with has very little to do with what was actually intended. So, resonant view or connected view, what is that? Well, again, I could spend an hour and a half talking about just this, you know, and I think probably just scratch the surface. But right view really has to do with the ways of looking at things that help us make sense. And one of them has to do about understanding the relationship of cause and effect. You know, it's very unusual in our uh, contemporary situation that people talk about the law of karma but the law of karma is the law of cause and effect. It's the law of what happens when we make an intention and what is the result. It's actually really basic. And one of the things that's about that is, is, is that it's, it's really good to look after one's parents. And it's also really important to recognize that generosity is an important thing to cultivate. And I read a quote, beautiful quote, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. That's from Winston Churchill. 
But one of the things that we have to recognize when we look at the Eightfold Path and when we look at the whole Buddhist teachings is the Buddhist teachings came through a traditional context, a traditional time, a traditional culture, and a traditional context. And that had many different aspects to it. And one of them was a sense of, you know, the unquestioning nature of somebody who was an authority. And the fact that, you know, different people receive different consequences depending on their status of society. And a deeply, deeply embedded sense of who people were by their family and their village and their culture and their clan and their work. And a tremendous sense of honor and loyalty to culture, to the people who are in power. And we are no longer living in a traditional context. We've moved from a modern context into a postmodern context. And so the kind of embeddedness of the family has disintegrated. And what the society is dealing with is a kind of an all-pervasive sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness and a fractured sense of belonging that is true for virtually every person that I have ever met in North America. So for me, when I look at right view in a postmodern context, it's about understanding how community needs to be the central axis of the wheel, of the Eightfold Path. We need to begin to start interpreting the Eightfold Path from the perspective of putting community at the center. Now, in the Buddha's time, he spoke about Sangha. And Sangha, what the Buddha was referring to was monks and nuns. In the West, Sangha is two people who sit together. There's no sense that it has anything to do with anybody who has a commitment other than just sitting together. That's Sangha. When the Buddha was referring to people who were meditating together in conjunction with the monastics, he talked about the fourfold assembly. He didn't use Sangha. We have gone beyond a binary world where there's just men and women. And we've also gone beyond a world where there's just monks, nuns, and lay people. We have priests who are in between. And so for me, we need to shift from a fourfold assembly to a manyfold assembly. Stretch it out a bit. Include everybody. But for me, when we look at a postmodern interpretation of the Eightfold Path, the manyfold assembly needs to be in the center. Now, I am one monastic, and there's a lot more of you than there are of me. And for most of you, probably I'm the first monastic that you've met. But what I know from the possibility of what monastic life is and has to offer is, is that it is tremendously rich. And you have to check out if you agree or not from your experience with this time on retreat, if hanging out with monastics has any value or not. That's for you to decide. So right view for me in a postmodern context is to put the manifold assembly at the center and to look at every other aspect of the eightfold path in terms of community. The second is resonant or connected intention. Intention sometimes is translated as right thought or right resolve. 
And classically, it's described as the intention towards renunciation, towards goodwill, and towards harmlessness. And what I know, I said at the beginning, and I'll say again now, is if the only thing that has happened on this retreat, the only thing that has happened on this retreat, is that you have made a commitment towards not harming yourself, it would have been absolutely worth everything. The months of preparation of the retreat committee, the efforts to negotiate this whole thing, it is non-trivial how important it is to take a stand against harming. And we have to start with ourselves. We have to. It's imperative that we start with ourselves. When we look at resonant or connected speech, you know, classically, the Buddha describes pairs of false speech and truthful speech, harsh speech and gentle and kind speech, divisive speech and speech that leads towards harmony, idle chatter, or purposeful speech. And so, you know, when we're practicing pause, when we stop and stay connected with our own body, you know, we can see when we're talking with people and just talking to fill up the space because the space feels uncomfortable, what happens to our attention, what happens to our awareness of our body? We disconnect. And so we have a tool that we can tolerate the discomfort, reconnect, and then begin to speak in congruence with our own values. But I also think what this means in a postmodern context is, is that we need to actually pick up specific skills and develop them. And so I was pleased to see your willingness to show up for Insight Dialogue and the kind of participation in that, because I think it's a useful skill to develop. And nonviolent communication, so that we can learn how to express our needs without blaming or criticizing or dumping. You know, when the first, I don't know how many years, 10 years, 15 years of living in the monastery, the kind of basic MO was is that shut up and watch your mind. <laughs> you know, everything can resolve from just sitting on the cushion. And you live in community with people, and I can tell you that that ain't so. <laughs> but we didn't have the skills. We didn't know how let alone safety, you know. So understanding the importance of communication is really central. There is nothing that can make a community go skittlywampus faster than the way people are speaking. And also it is tremendously significant in building and developing and maintaining trust and safety. It's really important. So right speech then shows up again when we look at right action. And right action, we're talking about keeping the five precepts, you know. So we started with the eight precepts, and tomorrow you can all celebrate and have five precepts. (laughs) 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 Which return to non-killing, non-stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, right speech, and refraining from intoxicants. And again, in the first precept, non-harming. 
The second precept, you know, there's different ways that we can steal things in this world that didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. And so it actually is one of the easiest ones to break, as well as right speech. The third precept to me is of a lot of interest because there's an awful lot of energy that goes on around our sexuality. A lot. And there's not a lot of support to hold it in a way which is really skillful. You know, know, in the 30 years or so that I've been in this business, I can probably count on one hand the number of Dhamma talks that I heard about this topic, which I just find absolutely flabbergasting. You know, something so important and so little opportunity to talk about it in a really open and candid way. What is going on? That's another story. (laughs) In terms of the Buddha's instructions, sexual misconduct has to do with um, having sexual relationships with people who are in committed partnerships, having sexual relationships with people who are underage, having sexual relationships in a way that causes harm. There's nothing in there about sexual orientation. The reason why this is an important thing for me is because for many of us, it's really important that this becomes part of our practice. And this is true whether you're celibate or you're in partnership. Because surprise or not, I am a human being. I know that's shocking. (laughs) and the characteristics and the qualities and the drives and the energies of being a human being go where the human being goes and there isn't some kind of a laser at the front gate of the monastery where when sexual organs dry up and fall off (laughs) so here we are so let's get with the program You know, what does it take in order to open up to this unbelievably powerful energy in a way that is compassionate and wise and kind and skillful and supportive of our path? How can we stay conscious with this? I mean, that's a year's conversation, you know. Then we go through right speech, and then there's intoxicants. You know, and I've said before, and it's worth saying again, you know, the thing about intoxicants is when there's enough garbage in our system, it dissolves the container. We have no capacity to keep the other precepts. Our discernment goes out the window. So independent of how virtuous or how strong your intentions are, you put enough gasoline in your system and it's going to shift. You know? So... In my sense, you know, one of the things that's needed in a postmodern society is really an emphasis to help support people get sober and stay sober and ways of integrating all of this stuff as part of their practice, you know. Right livelihood, you know, classically is about not engaging in anything that breaks the five precepts or engage in flesh or arms or poisons. And in a postmodern world, you know, I think keeping our planet from self-destructing might be a priority. And what is it going to take to do that, you know? 
And so, you know, all of these things are just enormous topics, but it's not good to just brush them aside because they're so big we don't know how to begin to address it. Right effort has to do classically with preventing things that are unwholesome from arising, abandoning things that have arisen that are unwholesome, arousing the qualities which are really skillful, and maintaining that which is wholesome and skillful. In my sense, in a postmodern context, right effort is around developing community, beginning to look and see at the unbelievable importance of the manifold assembly and starting to cultivate it. It's a whole other huge topic why it is that so many of us have to deal with this kind of vast, barren wasteland of absolute emptiness devoid of any warmth. But my deepest sense is is that the way to resolve this is through developing trusting community and relationship that some of this stuff can shift out of our system. It's not a question of, you know, nibbana or bust. It's a question of finding the caring to move into this kind of pain and allow it to transform with a sense of love that for some, they have never known before. The seventh on the Eightfold Path is right concentration. And certainly, I can see how valuable these retreats are, where you know the conditions are set up that are ideal. You've got people like Terry, who's been teaching for years, who has such an incredibly flowing, lovely way of expressing herself in, in, in mechanisms and, and, and styles that just are so appropriate a retreat center that's been here since the early 30s, a community that are committed to bringing love into everything that they do, nature that supports us, food that nourishes us, a structure that, even though it drives us crazy, is designed to help us with waking up. But what's really important to remember is is, is that, you know, there's a difference between concentration and mindfulness. And what can be really confusing for people is is that because the conditions here are ideal, then when we leave and you've got emails and telephone calls and traffic lights and you've got to do ten things in five minutes and, and all of a sudden you're not feeling so calm and so centered and you're wondering what's happened. You know, the pressure on people now is just phenomenal, you know. But nevertheless, it is still useful to find ways to still the mind and to let it all go that we're not looping constantly about the things that we worry and the stuff that we have to do and what needs to happen, the conversations that needs to happen and the planning that needs to happen and all the rest of that. You know, so figure out a way to have a a three-breath retreat where for three breaths you are on retreat and do it periodically throughout the day. You know, I was just at this community in San Diego, which is a branch of Plum Village of Titnan Hans, and they have this Bawatanha buster built into their system, which is just fabulous. They have a community agreement that any time they hear any bell ring or a telephone ring, they stop. They stop walking, they stop talking, they stand still where they are at. And it's amazing to see the effect that it has on people. Now they're in a monastery. They're supported to do that. 
But there might be ways in which people can do something that works. You know? I mean, I don't think it's bad when you hear a bell just to stop. You might not need to stop for the entire time it's ringing. But if you hear a bell, let that be a time just to connect and see what's happening with your body. A bell, a siren, a telephone, a cell phone. There's a gazillion of them everywhere. (laughs) So rather than the impulse to get, to do, to fix, to sort, to talk, to do all of that, we need to retrain ourselves to have that to be pause. That's a pause. That's a moment of pause. And see what that feels like. I was so happy we could all go up there today. I was so happy, so delighted. I love nature, and I was wanting us all to go, and I couldn't quite work out how we would all be able to do it. And I didn't want to leave some people behind, and I couldn't quite figure it out, and it was just worked out perfect. We had troopers, and it was just great, you know? And part of the reason why I wanted to share that is because I just feel so differently when I'm in a space where there's no buildings. There's wide open sky, and everything is grown or rock, or ice, or mud, or whatever it is, but it's according to its own nature, not according to human design. And for me, that's a context where things just naturally settle out. You know, so sometimes what's really helpful in your practice is not to force yourself to sit when you've been spending 10 hours inside of an office in front of a computer sitting. You know, maybe what you need to do is to go outside and stand by a tree. Even in Los Angeles, there are a few trees. (laughs) And so, you know, part of what we need to learn is how to do things in a way which is actually responsive to what our needs are, rather than to force ourselves into a box according to an idea about what meditation should be. Because we think if we did that, then we will be good. The last of the Eightfold Path is Right Mindfulness. Obviously, it's really helpful to practice. But it doesn't have to be here. If you can have a three-breath retreat, you can do it anywhere. You know standing meditation. How often are you standing? Determine that as a time for practice. How often are you walking? What's the difference between walking meditation and getting somewhere? Why isn't it possible to do walking meditation when you're getting somewhere? And so rather than feeling like you have to carve out eight more hours of the day for practice, bring the practice into your day. When you stand, stand. When you walk, walk. Take three breath retreats. But what we have to deal with is the kind of like mad thing that goes on with the computer and Facebook and the inundation of sense input. And, you know, for myself, I experience the same thing, and I have to have computer-free days where I refuse to turn it on. I just don't. I don't go anywhere near it. Because it's addictive and it's compelling, and the more you do, the more there is to do. And it doesn't support mindfulness of body. Facebook does not support mindfulness (laughs) of body. So here we are. You know, the last evening of quite a remarkable journey for all of us. And the transition time. Tomorrow's our last day. I wanted to keep this talk short, but I want to finish with a story. It's a true story. And I can't remember where I first heard it from. 
A man had a very developmentally dyslaid boy, and there was some kind of a school program, and the parents were gathering, and he got up to speak in front of the auditorium to talk to the parents. So just put yourself in this guy's shoes. His opening words were, I don't know where in the universe my son fits. Can you imagine what it would be like to live where that was the opening words that you would say to an auditorium full of parents of developmentally delayed delayed kids? And then he goes on to tell this story. He said he was out walking with his son in a park, and they were playing baseball, some kids. So his boy came up to Dad and said, you know, I want to play ball. So what's Dad going to do? You know, what would you do? So he goes up to the pitcher, who's a kid, and says, my son wants to play ball. So how long does it take a kid to look at another kid and sort out that there's a deal here that's quite different? So this pitcher was in a dilemma because he was forced to make a decision that was actually going to affect the whole team. And what was he going to do? So he said, sure, he can play ball. So this little fellow was out in the field, and he was grinning from ear to ear, and he was so happy to be one of the boys playing ball. And then it came time for that team to be up to bat. And somehow or another, it was the last game, the last inning, the bases were scored, and this little fellow was up to bat. Now, he could hardly hold a bat, but he was up to bat. And so the one who was throwing the ball stepped in very close and threw the ball right at the bat, and it missed. (laughs) So the pitcher got the ball again, stepped in close, threw the ball right at the bat, and it connected. And the ball rolled three inches. (laughs) And everyone on the bench said, drop the bat. Drop the bat and run that way. Run that way. And so it took a while for him to figure out what the deal was, but he got it. And he ran that way. And then the pitcher took the ball and heaved it out into left field. (laughs) And the guy in left field got the ball. And meanwhile, all of his teammates were chasing him around the bases. And all of the other guys were chasing him around the bases until he scored a home run. These were kids. And the thing about this story was is that everybody won. Everyone won. This kid won. His dad won. Everybody listening to the story won. Everybody cheering him on won. And everyone who ever hears this story wins. They meet up a new game on the spot in order to deal with the circumstances. 
So for me, you know, one of the things about this story, which almost always moves me to tears, no matter how many times I tell it, is it makes me ask the question, what game am I playing? And who's winning? And when we can play so that everybody wins, that, to me, is the culmination of the Eightfold Path. The perfection of it. Not just the culmination of it. It's the perfection of it. So check it out. You know, what game are you playing? And who's winning? So I'd like to close there, leave that with you, and into a discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.